The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. Welcome, gardeners, to In the Garden, hosted by UC Master Gardeners. My name is Mark Fearley, and I will be your host today on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today, our program will be on homegrown tomatoes, and we will have a special guest. And he is a tomato guru by the name of Brian Hale. Brian, welcome. Mark, thanks for having me. Hey, great. Brian, uh, you are a master gardener, is that correct? That's correct. I've been a master gardener since 1999. Um, I'm a plant enthusiast, just like all the rest of us. Love the garden. And I've ended up specializing in tomatoes somehow or another and just fallen in love with growing tomatoes. What else do you like in gardening? Are there any other special uh, vegetables, for example? I understand you love peppers also. I, I do love peppers, and as we know, they're related to tomatoes. So... Uh, and as we go into the tomatoes and how they're started and so forth, I'm fortunate enough to have a greenhouse so that allows me to start my tomato seeds, my pepper seeds. And my raised bed garden contains about 95% of the plants that I start from seed. How much do you plant and what do you have available to do your planting? I have uh, six raised beds, about 8 foot by 8 foot, made out of railroad ties. And uh, I like the fact that we're in... Southern California, so we can go seasonal. A lot of my friends tell me they keep their tomatoes in the ground all year, and they are, because they are perennials, capable of producing the following year. However, I'm kind of greedy, and I take everything out seasonally, so my garden now, being February, or late January, is full of lettuce, snow peas, onions, that sort of thing. Very good. So that gives a variety and... Of, of crop all year long, is that right? That's correct. So that's why, again, I'm willing to give up the tomatoes. We talked about peppers briefly. They're amazing. Uh, I put them in the garden in late April, similar to the same time the tomatoes go in, and I just finished harvesting the last of the peppers, so that they're a good long harvest, and I'm going to miss them for a couple of months. Very good. Uh, before we get in too much into tomatoes, tell me about your experience in Master Gardeners. Have you, You've been a member since? 1999 is when I first got into Master Gardening. And uh, for the next couple of years, uh, working my volunteer hours, was I was actually uh, doing the introduction to the following uh, Master Gardening in training classes through the next two years, where I introduced the speakers and stuff. So... It was kind of nice because I got the class in 99 and then 2000 and 2001 introducing the speaker. So I essentially took the class three years in a row. Which That's was not a bad <laughs> deal, is it? No, it's pretty interesting. I've also been involved as part of my volunteer outreach. Uh, I've written articles for our in-house uh, Gardening Time magazine. I'm sure you've read a few. Right. I volunteered in a school garden in Yorba Linda for over 12 years. I really enjoy working with kids. I'm about to start into another garden, as a matter of fact, in the next few weeks. Uh, I've been on the steering committee 
with the Master Gardeners. What is that? That is kind of like a uh, a like a business of uh, you know who's going to do what and who's overseeing what and what we recommend and you know just kind of like where any, we're going and where what we're going, we want to do what we want to do and the direction the uh, Master Gardeners are going to, to go in. And these days, I spend most of my time on the Speakers Bureau talking to different groups, usually about my specialty. I don't talk about roses. That's outside of what I do or enjoy, but I talk about vegetables, bees. Uh, in March, I'm talking about composting to a group of little Cub Scouts. I've talked to senior citizens about uh, seed saving and, and so forth, so that's what I, I like to do. So you're a great master gardener from a standpoint that you are involved in a lot, but specializing some, becoming an expert. How did you get involved with tomatoes, and what is your interest with tomatoes? Well, I got involved just because they were one of the many fruits and vegetables I like to grow, but there was something over the years that just thrills me even to this day, and it's why I like doing school gardens, actually, because I hope that somebody, even one or two of the kids a year, can get that passion. There's just something about that small little seed that you can hold in your hand, and if you breathe on it wrong, and it will fall out of your hand or blow out of your hand with the slightest breath. But within four or five months, it can become 8 to 10 feet tall and produce 20 to 30 pounds of tomatoes. So there, there's just something about that. I also like the process of starting the seeds, selecting the seeds. You know, it starts this time of year going through the seed catalogs and goes all the way through to where I finally get them in the ground in April. You get them in the ground. How do you get them there? Well, I, uh, as I said, I started in the greenhouse, and uh, they tomatoes do not like cold soil. So I'm fortunate enough to, uh, again, have, have a place to plant them, and I have the heating pads, so the soil's around 70 degrees. What do you mean heating pads? There how, are, how do you use a heating pad? Is that for seed starting? Yes, it is, to keep the soil warm. And a heating pad is a horticultural-type heating pad that's available at specialty stores. Uh, you plug it in, it's a plastic mat, and it holds at about 70 degrees, and you can put your planting trays right on top of that mat. And can you go into that a little bit? Because here we are uh, in in late winter, we're getting ready for seed starting. Is that correct? That's correct. I use, and there's no hard, fast rules. But on or about Valentine's Day is when I like to start my seeds. How do you do that? I, of course, have already been through the catalogs. I've saved them. A tomato seed, if stored properly in an airtight, I put them in a plastic bag. Uh, I put some rice in there or whatever that's going to absorb some moisture, seal them up tight, and then they go inside another plastic container that's sealed. So if, if handled right, a, a tomato seed will last about as long as 10 years. Really? And, of course, as I look at the seed packet, and let's just say I've, I've got 20 left from 2006 just to make up a year. I know they're starting to get old, and I will plant more of those knowing that they're not going to be quite as viable. So normally if you plant 10 and you're going to get 9 because they're fresh seeds, in that case, I'll, if, I, if I want to get, let's say, 5 plants, I'll plant all 20 of them. Plus their, their time is wore out anyway, so... If they come up, great. If not, I have so many other varieties in. Do you keep all, all say, all that uh, germinate? Do, do you plant them individually in a... In a right. Tomatoes, uh, because I plant such a ridiculous amount as part of our Master Gardening Plant Exchange, 
Uh, there's a few other tomato experts in our group also, and with the same sickness I have, <laughs> excessive tomato growing. There you go. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we have a plant exchange with our master gardener. So I, I, I plant, and I probably plant 150 and give away 100 to the master gardeners, several to my friends, and I put 30 in myself. But back to the process of that seeding. So I know that if I have a particular variety and I'm going to want, let's say, 10, I'll plant maybe 12 to 15. And at some point, you're not going to be able to pot them all up because understand the process of getting those up into four-inch pots. We can talk about that in a second. That's a lot of pots. (laughs) Yes. So anyway, so that's what I do. I uh, separate the germinated seeds. And the nice thing about a tomato plant at that young little tender age where overall root and all they're only an inch tall they're ready to be transplanted and uh, they're not so sensitive you can carefully pull them out of the starting mix and lay them out without worrying about a root ball on them or any or any problems that brings up a good point starting mix what do you use and are there a variety of things you can use as a starting mix or do you have one that you particularly like? I don't have any in particular from a brand name standpoint, but I do like to use a starting mix because it's in such a way that it reduces, like, say, damping off. Uh, It's not too uh, compacted. It's just made for starting seeds, all seeds. So a starting mix off the shelf at any big box store or specialty store. Uh, Wet those out. Put your seeds in the starting mix, and then and move them prob- up the potting probably shelf. near where they have their uh, little beds uh, that used for starting. Uh, it, it, well, the, the the beds that I plant them in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's on the other side of the yard, fortunately. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> well, uh, that's interesting. I know some people use a sterile mix, or make their own, or use something like vermiculite. Mm-hmm. And there's a th- some people don't, but right. Though there's a thousand ways to start them, and tomato is a pretty hardy plant, so it's not horribly particular. So uh, you can start them in almost anything. Making your own is a process. For me, at some point, you know, I've got so much work involved. Making my own starting mix is just not in the in the scheme of things. So uh, again, I'll just start with something store bought. Goes a long way. Good. And you can start in a one small little, uh, let's say you take a six-pack, in each little container, you can put your 10 tomato starts. Carefully label all six. And what I try to do is handle them. I take the one, let's just call it celebrity. I'll I'll take that out, set the six-pack aside, and I'll work strictly with those in an individual basis. I'll plant, let's say again, I wanted 10, and if there's 11 or 12, well, I can only handle so many tomatoes, so I pick out the best ones, and the other two are thrown out of the greenhouse, make sure they're no longer there before, and all that soil that was in there, in case there's any leftover seeds, all that's managed. Then I bring the six-pack back and take out my next variety. I see. Okay. Uh, any varieties that you particularly like? I happen to like Momontaro quite a bit, which is a medium-sized tomato, a little on the pink side. and I, uh, They're delicious, full of tomato flavor, and, you know, when you grow a lot of tomatoes and you have a choice, I, so I always have a Momotaro. And I happen to like Carbon, which is a, a, a blacker tomato. Uh, 
My wife's not crazy about them because she likes to eat with her eyes, of course, and it just doesn't look that attractive on the plate. But if you're blindfolded and eating a tomato, that's one. That is a delicious tomato. Very good. So now we have got some germinated tomato shoots, mm-hmm. whatever we might want to call them. And what, do we, what happens next? How long does that take first? And then what do we do next? It's about, uh, they'll germinate in the seven to eight, nine days. And then um, not too long after that, I, uh, once they're about an inch tall, I'm ready to transplant them. And what I do is I use four-inch pots that I've saved and collected. And, again, being a master gardener, I just put the word out. I need four-inch pots, and next thing you know, I have, maybe I shouldn't have put the word out. I end up with more four-inch pots than I know what to do with. Gotcha. Uh, it, by the way, in the seeding process, the mm-hmm. germination process, you use the heating pad, which has a slight heat, right. not a... Not Just like 70 we degrees. do with the heating pad, <laughs> right. pad that we normally think of. But do you use light? No, because it's a greenhouse, uh, unlike, a, unlike trying to grow them in a, a windowsill where they have a tendency to be leggy, this is fully lit, fully in the sunlight, so there's no issues with that. Okay. Any suggestion for people that don't have a... Yeah, greenhouse? grow them under, there's all kinds of light setups, but you can just grow them under fluorescent also. It's, uh, to, which you, you just want to avoid them being too leggy when you first get them. And, and wh- wh- how do they get leggy? Uh, because they're reaching, not enough light, that simple. They're reaching they're for reaching light. For yeah, so, so if you're going to grow them inside, you need to uh, do some sort of lighting. And, again, it, you can, there's all kinds of options of, of stuff you can buy that's made specifically to start seeds. Gotcha. Okay. And let's get back to the four-inch pots. Four-inch pots. There you go. So uh, a tomato has a unique ability to produce roots from its stem that's above ground. That's right. Some plants you have to be extremely careful with. Strawberries, for example, they've got to be plant- transplanted at the exact same depth they came out of the pot on. But in the case of the tomato, you can bury the stem, and any part of the stem you bury will produce additional roots. What does that do for the the tomato plant? It allows it to take up more nutrition with more uh, root area, of course, and it makes it a sturdier plant for support. Although you still have to cage them, it just becomes a sturdier plant out of the ground. I see. Uh, and so now we've got our four-inch pot. We're planting them as deep as we can in the four-inch pot pot and then filling soil Lay, or, that's exactly I fill up the pot half full and uh, so I have two inches of soil in there and then I put the tomato that fresh little tiny sprout down in at that point so it has almost some per- walled protection mm-hmm. place to capture some extra heat and grow in a, in a semi-protected area so in doing so uh, it allows me as a tomato to get as it gets taller I then fill the pot to the top. That starts what I'm trying to do even in the soil, um, that it can produce additional roots because now I put two more inches of soil. So so now you've got it doing it the way you are recommending, planting deep, filling. As it grows out of the pot, put more new, soil in. New, uh, new roots. Now you've got a healthy, sturdy 
plant to support the multitude of tomatoes that are going to come up on right. top. Okay. Uh, now, you let's go from four-inch pot. What do we do now? Now, it's uh, we've started on or about Valentine's Day. Again, no hard, fast rules. And we're shooting for on or about tax day, April 15th. Again, no hard rules. And as we know, every season is different. So once they're in the four-inch pots, they're ready to go in the ground. I will hold some back and transplant them up to one-gallon pots just to have a little staggering in uh, the timing. So they get to even be bigger and healthier, and they may go in in May. And at that point, they already have blooms on them. So it allows me to get an early start by leaving some back in the greenhouse in a one-gallon pot. By the time they hit the ground, they've already already have flowers on them. The ones I plant in April on or about the 15th are in the ground, and we may have some cool weather, and it might linger a little bit. And so they'll still be good, healthy plants. They just won't be as early. So I kind of cheat by holding some back. Cheating can be good. Yes, in a tomato it can be. (laughs) And you almost get a lengthened growing season with the plants that are are uh, grown later, put in the ground later. Right. It, even though they're in the ground later, they were healthier in the greenhouse, and they already are flowering, so that allows you to get a little tomato earlier. As far as the extended season, uh, you know, some tomatoes do, you know, they're, they're, they're named early girl, or which obviously are earlier tomato, or Siberian which grows in cooler weather. The names almost give away. Cool season. Cool season. Well, how about temperature? What what do tomatoes like as far as temperature goes? Well, they like to go on the ground at 55 degrees, so I'm watching the weather every day to see if we have steady 55. And there's, it's not going to hurt it at 50, and it's not going to hurt it at 60, but that's, you know, you've been growing these, you're anxious to get them in the ground. So in the middle of April, that's when the, 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 the nighttime temperatures stay around 55 or above. That's when they go in the ground, and uh, then they'll grow through at least August, depending on that particular variety. Well, variety and also the weather particularly. Remember, a tomato plant is just a solar-powered sugar machine. So last year, for example, it was warmer earlier. So there was no time for them during spring and summer to really slow down. They were warmer nights. So they were producing and they were just a machine nonstop and they kind of, matter of fact, it ran consistent as I quizzed my fellow master gardeners that uh, the tomato season ended a little earlier last year. The production was great, but they never had a chance to to rest. So the ideal situation is nice warm days in early summer and back to a cooler night so it can almost take a break where, like I say, last year they were just going nonstop. Now, do you plant in the same place every year? That's the age-old problem in that even though I have a large garden, I plant at least 20 tomato plants, and sometimes I'm forced to go into the same spot over and over. In preparation for today's talk, I went on the Internet and just printed out tomato diseases and disorders and I, as you can see, I've got a pile of paper 20 deep. There's an awful lot of issues with tomatoes. So if you do have to plant in the same spot over and over again, oftentimes you look to a hybrid. I mentioned celebrity earlier, and you'll see that alphabet of V, F, N, T, 
you know, uh, Fusarium, I think it's pronounced, bacteria, spot, uh, Fusarium, verticillium, uh, that type of thing. So those letters represent that that particular hybrid tomato plant is resistant to those. So if you're having problems uh, and you have to go back to the same spot, it wouldn't be a bad idea to, to look for those uh, disease-resistant labels. That's a very important thing because recently we have had a lot of different diseases that have impacted. And as we're sitting here today at the South Coast Research Center and not at the studio, this is where a lot of the research goes on. Correct. And it might be a good time to bring up grafting. I've got that on my list to ask you. Grafting. Tell me about that, as long as we're talking about disease resistance. Uh, grafting tomatoes has been around for quite a while. It helps with uh, increased production, but it's becoming more and more popular with home gardeners as it becomes available, and that is to say there are now rootstock seeds available that are resistant to the entire alphabet of diseases. I've been doing this now three or four years, and as you know, I'm giving a class on it to our fellow master gardeners That's here in a correct. couple of weeks. And uh, the idea behind that is similar to when uh, the grapes were having a huge problem with phylloxera. Well, they found a phylloxera-resistant grapevine, but the grapes were horrible. But nothing would kill it. So grafting is the thing to do. You take your favorable, what they call scion or graft wood, and you graft that on top of the rootstock, and now you've got a resistant rootstock and a favorable top. That's exactly what we do. Now, because I'm kind of a tomato nut, as I've explained earlier, I let a rootstock grow ungrafted just to see what the results were. Well, it was 12 feet long. It had the, the kind of yellow golf ball size oddly shaped tomatoes that were like a rubber ball. I mean, they were unedible and horrible, but that was one healthy plant. So I really got to see what oh, happens. So what we do at the, at the stage when they're about two inches tall, and they're about one centimeter in uh, stem size, one to two centimeters, that's when you have uh, the rootstock that has grown. You cut the top off, and then you're favorable. I happen to be doing German Johnsons on, on the class. We're going to take the top of those, and we're going to put them on the rootstock, and with the right little clip, silicone clip, put them together, and if things go good, you'll know in a week or two whether it takes. You then have uh, a grafted tomato that you can plant in an area that you just could not get tomatoes to grow. Now, Brian, amateur that like to grow tomatoes, can they buy grafted tomatoes? Grafted tomatoes are available. I've seen them at the store, I, and they're, they're more and more, but they're very expensive. I've sold them for, like for $15 wow. for a one-gallon tomato plant that's grafted. Let me add this about grafting, since we were earlier talking about how a, uh, the root can grow from the stem. Well, you have a graft union that in the small stage seems to be right in the middle, but as the tomato gets larger and larger, it's just an inch off the ground and stays, that graft union stays low. So unlike any other tomato, you cannot plant a grafted tomato deep because that allows the stem of the favorable tomato to now go underground 
and you don't have your disease resistant because it wants to put roots out. So it's important with a grafting tomato you not plant that any deeper. That is an excellent tip for our listeners today. Keep that in mind, listeners. And before we go on a little bit, I just want to do a little commercial here for our listeners. Remember, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and this is In the Garden, hosted by UC Master Gardeners. We're on every Thursday morning, 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. So hopefully you'll tune in and get some great advice from fellow Master Gardener experts, as well as some scientists that oftentimes come in and give us their point of view. Okay, let's go on. We've, we've done a good job with, with grafting and getting tomatoes started. And how do we maintain these tomatoes once they are in the ground, starting to grow, blossoms are coming? How about watering? How about spacing? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we've already talked a little bit about location and the importance of having a good location. Let's first get into spacing. Well, we know that the tomato uh, is going to be at least eight feet tall, and it's going to need a cage. And the cage is going to be at least uh, one to two feet in, in diameter to, to support that. So right off the bat, you need to base the cages in such a way that there's room in between. So there's no hard rule here, but tomatoes at about 18 to 24 inches apart on center will give you a chance to cage them properly, and then once they start to get tall, uh, they borrow each other's cage, if you will. So sure. they kind of spread out and uh, it, it covers. So in my 8 by 8 garden, I can get nine tomato plants. Gotcha. I plant them around the edges, and I like to put sunflowers in the middle to give them a little summertime shade. Sure. How, how about watering? Watering. They like to be watered like almost everything. Watered deep, uh, but they don't like soggy soil, and they don't like it, of course, exceptionally dry. So it's always good when it's a hot summer day that even though the top of the soil may appear to be very dry, a, a, a trained gardener will know to take a little spade and just take a little peek down three or four inches and see what condition it is. Don't automatically water just because the top inch of the soil is dry. Now, do I understand once the <laughs> blossoms start coming, watering a little bit less is the thing to do? Do you go by that or is no, that just, I go strictly just a myth? St well... Everybody's got their own opinion, and we're, of course, we're talking to me, so we're going to get the, the I, way I, I do it, of course. Opinion. And my opinion is it's, a, it's all relative to the weather. If it's been extra windy, of course, that tomato plant is going to dry faster. If it's been extra hot, if there's been long, foggy morning, mornings like we've experienced these last few days, they're not going to need as much water. But as they start to produce tomatoes, you know, like I said, they could be 20 or 30 pounds of tomatoes on there. So they, they take a reasonable amount of water. But there's Very no good. hard, fast rule. It's, a, it's every single year. And I've been growing tomatoes in Southern California in my garden for over 30. And I don't think any two have been alike. Right. And from what I understand, and this is what I've heard or learned over the years, that probably one of the biggest reasons that 
tomato plants and other plants die is from overwatering, soggy roots, and our clay soil here acts like a helps yeah. helps keep it soggy. So, great advice about looking down into the soil, just using a little spade or even a finger. Even a finger works, yeah. I found that you can, rec- and this is true with, like you say, all plants, even house plants. You can always bring a, well, not always, but most of the time you can bring a plant back that's been underwatered. But once it begins to rot from overwatering, it's too late. So you want to err on the side of underwatering. In a little bit, we'll get into maybe some of uh, what goes wrong with tomatoes when, when we go. But before we get into that, we can talk about some other things. How about tomato? What, what's the difference between homegrown tomatoes and store-bought well, that's, tomatoes? That's an excellent question. Here's the real difference. The homegrown tomato is completely vine-ripened, had a chance to hang on the, the vine, of course, full sun, and it's ready to eat. Well, as you take that luscious, beautiful tomato, you, you can't ship it. You can't send it across the state, across the country. Uh, you can't store it well because it's on the verge of, uh, within a few days, it's past its prime and will begin to rot. So the unfortunate fact of tomatoes in the store is they have to be uh, harvested all at once. They have to be shippable. Uh, they have to have thick skins. There's a lot of properties that go into handling a store-bought tomato. And, of course, as I said, that can't happen with a homegrown tomato. A store-bought tomato is actually harvested in what they call a breaker stage. And that is a green tomato that just starts to show some color. And according to, uh, I don't know if it's a state or federal, but you're allowed to call that vine ripened because it started to break or show color on the vine. So that tomato is then handled. It doesn't bruise, of course. It's it's still a, a, a pretty unmature tomato that's easy, easy to handle, easy to ship. They store them in airtight containers, and then when it comes time to make them red, they expose them to ethylene gas, and that turns them red. It doesn't allow any cell emaciation. Mm-hmm. Love that word. That's what is part of vine ripening. Uh, that never happens because it was essentially on the edge of green when it was when it was picked. So a store-bought tomato is, in my opinion, is just a green tomato they turned red well, or forced well, to turn red. Well, let me ask you then, if I'm hearing you correctly, <clears throat> the commercially grown tomatoes that we buy in our store aren't necessarily uh, uh, grown and bought for their taste, but more because of their ability to last and to ripen, but not uh, uh, Not ripen after they're cut and last maybe three weeks (laughs) in transportation or wherever, because I understand many of our tomatoes that we eat here are grown in Florida and in Canada and many also in North Carolina and Mexico and and greenhouses as well as 
tomatoes as well as locally. Right. So you can understand the, the, the need for tomatoes and the ability to ship them. There's got to be a happy medium there, and it's almost impossible to let that get any riper and still think that you can handle it or, or ship it. And if I'm hearing you correctly... The opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily represent those of the management of KUCI or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show, go to KUCI.org. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 in Irvine. When we grow a homegrown tomato, we grow it based on our tastes. Exactly. Not the ability to last a long time, because there's nothing better than to go pick a homegrown tomato off the vine and just take a bite out of it. There's nothing like it. What What are the best tasting tomatoes? And I'm asking you with this, with a little uh, thought in mind. My understanding is that the smaller tomato, the tomato, the more concentrated the flavor is. For example, uh, uh, a beefsteak tomato may not taste quite as uh, as good as a little uh, little cherry tomato. Little cherry yeah. tomato. I I don't know the facts on whether it's concentrated, but I do know my own personal taste, and uh, I like a sweet 100. That or a sun gold, which are the uh, cherry tomatoes that are, are are gold in color, they're hard to beat. I mean, it's just yes. they're hard to get them into the house. They, you know. <laughs> they just seem to disappear on the way from. The what looked like a nice basket house. of them is just a few left. So, yeah, uh, the, they're they're really really tasty. But again, as long as it's vine ripened, and you know, there's different varieties like low acid and. Uh, when you go through the seed catalogs, which I told you I do quite a bit, mm-hmm. you can you can read it. It's like reading about wines. There's a long description, and then you just have to decide which one strikes you at that given moment, and then you try to keep the list down to 30 or 40 varieties. I know I do. <laughs> there you go. I like that. But uh, uh, t- tomato taste is good because that that's a good advice uh, to our listeners. Because we all often decide, I like uh, the early girls, and it, it's a early, taste present. Yeah, whatever, right. whatever you particularly like. Again, like, like the Momentaro I talked about earlier, and the, uh, the Carbon, that just suits me and fits me well, and uh, that's the ones I. Kind How of, about the older variety of tomato? Heirloom. Heirlooms. When you say heirlooms, yes. Well, heirlooms are good just because they've not been cross-pollinated. It was a, a tomato grown. From hundreds of years ago, the seeds have been saved over the years, and uh, for that reason, they they stay true to what they were. And the reason they've been saved is because they are particularly sweet and, and uh, uh, very delicious. The difference, of course, with hybrid, the cross-pollinated, is, is they're trying to take some favorable traits from one tomato and, and mix it into another. So if you had, and we were talking about, let's just say, Sweet 100s. There may have been a tomato plant that produced a lot of tomato, cherry tomatoes, but it wasn't particularly sweet. And another one that had just the opposite, extremely sweet but low production. So through hybridization, they mix those two. And, uh, of course, this has been going on for decades. So we have a pretty nice selection of hybrid tomatoes that have favorable characteristics from two different parent plants. 
in, in growing our tomatoes, is there any advantage to using companion plants that you look to? Is there something you grow with your tomatoes? Or is it good? They're what they call nightshades. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Well, they're nightshades. You know, the potatoes in that family, the peppers we talked about. But I don't have any particular one that enhances, uh, like a bean can take fixed nitrogen from the air and put it in the soil, for example. So there's nothing in particular I'm doing in or around a tomato other than basil, because I like calabrese. (laughs) So if you're going to get a companion plate, let's go for flavor here. So it's always nice. Basil and tomatoes go together in the kitchen. So for that reason, I like to make sure I have plenty of basil. And I usually, on the very edges of all my tomatoes, I have several basil plants growing. Very good. And we move along that line a little bit. Oftentimes, when I'm looking at our hotline, the Master Gardener hotline, which I will give our listeners the website a little bit later in case they have a problem or an issue that they can't get an answer to, the Master Gardener's hotline will help them out. But we often hear about, gee, my, uh, I'm getting some blossom end rot, or the tomatoes are cracking, or leaf roll, or sun scalds. How can we avoid that? And is there any... Uh, advantage to getting the plant more nutrients by pruning? Well, let's first talk about the diseases. Again, as I mentioned, I have a pile of paper in front of me that I printed in preparation for today. And as I read through it, I realized you have to have, uh, you have to be a scientist to get to all these answers. So my best recommendation on that really is if you have end rot, is to just... Take advantage of the Internet, look it up, and, and see what's going on, because there's a million reasons. Even as I was reading and Rod, I don't have it immediately in front of me. There were three or four sure. particular reasons that that created uh, that scenario. So it's really hard to, to decipher exactly what to do about every single one of those diseases. Again, uh, if you want to go with a disease resistant, that will help reduce quite a bit. Early blight, where the... Uh, Leaves turn brown on the bottom. Yes. Not much you can do about it. A tomato we talked about in the cage and getting taller and becoming a, a nice long-time summertime plant uh, starts to produce tomatoes at the bottom. It produces them as it grows up. So once plants you pull, grow up. the plants grow and the tomatoes follow it up. So you'll notice in the middle of uh, you know. It's okay. That's all right. In in. The, in the middle of summer, there we go. <laughs> Sorry, we're here at the research center, and they are getting calls. <laughs> they are. Maybe someone's calling in for some questions, and we haven't aired this yet. Wouldn't that That's be right. something? That would be. <laughs> anyway, tomatoes are produced then uh, as the summer goes on. They produce in the bottom, in the middle. So you'll notice as the summer goes on, you're picking tomatoes higher up on the plant. Does does any of these issues have anything to do with the water? Uh, as far as the diseases go? Right. Yeah. Or, or, or 
cracking or yeah there's definitely water related issues with that and you want to be for example uh you don't want to splash as you just hose your tomatoes off it's often said don't get the leaves wet well i tell you on a hundred degree day when they quit producing flowers during the hot periods uh i don't mind going out there and spraying them in the summertime but you certainly don't want to just have a hose blast that splashes the soil up onto the leaves you that creates a lot of issues, so you want to eliminate that. So if you water by hose, just have a, a, a nice steady stream and lay the hose at the base and try to avoid splashing soil on the leaves. Gotcha. That, that's a reason for a lot of problems, actually. Good point. Good point. Good. Uh, and keeping the garden clean is one thing that that I always tell people when I'm doing workshops on various items solve a lot of problems. Yeah, you want to keep, uh, in the case of tomatoes, for a couple of reasons. As the tomato starts to get big, tall, and healthy, there'll be uh, several branches and the leaves making contact with the ground. So for two reasons. One is for disease. I like to snap those off so there are no leaves from the base of the plant touching the ground. And secondarily, it allows for a little circulation to reduce other diseases that might be uh, more subject towards you know, not good circulated, stays wet longer, stuff like that. Well, Brian, I've been, we've, we've still got a little bit of time here. I've been asking a lot of questions. I know there must be some areas that you want to talk about that I probably haven't asked you about. Well, there is Anything a... Anything in particular? Yeah, I, I think uh, the, the, the past, of the history of tomatoes, not, nec- like not necessarily when they were discovered and, and that sort of thing, but just how they came about. As we colonized from England and uh, the European countries uh, in the early years, uh, tomatoes were thought to be poisonous. They don't really know why, but they were not consumed here in America for years and years. And we don't know if it was because the plates were pewter in those days and the acid in tomatoes would be uh, leaching the lead and and killing people or uh, it was part of the nightshade family. You know, there's a poisonous side on nightshade. Of course, these vegetables don't fall in that, but they are nightshade, so they were afraid maybe that was the situation. But um, in 1813, it happened to be that the Creoles that were down in New Orleans decided to start using them and and it was discovered, of course, they weren't poisonous. But in those days, and especially that far from the concentrated colonies of the East, uh, they began to fall in favor, but news traveled slowly. But an interesting thing happened in 1820. There was a a Colonel Robert Gibbon Johnson, and he announced that at noon on September 26th, he would sit on the courthouse steps of the Boston courthouse, and he was going to eat a bushel of tomatoes. Well, it was highly concentrated population there hey, let's go see this guy kill himself. And it was said that a large, large crowd gathered to watch this event. And, of course, as we all know, he didn't die. And it is said that that particular event is what changed America's opinion on tomatoes. Is that right? And from that day forward, they, their popularity, as we know, just went crazy. And tomatoes uniquely happen to be in every cuisine in the country or in the world. It seems like it's, it. it's a unique that there's different flavors that come from different countries, but a tomato is universal in all uh, all countries' culinary process, so it's it's pretty interesting. Interesting history. Now I have something else I want to share with you that I just think is fantastic. Uh, is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? Well, 
botanically, it's, it's a fruit. It's uh, edible flesh surrounding a seed born of a flower. Pretty simple, pretty botanically correct. But in the late 1800s, now that tomatoes were so popular, they were being imported. And a tariff, a 10% tariff, was put on all vegetables. So after a few years, uh, one of the importers raised a stink and said, wait a minute, botanically, these are fruits. And I don't want to pay tax on the vegetables. And one thing led to another. And in 1883, uh, I'm sorry, 1893, it was brought to the Supreme Court. And it was decided since tomatoes were grown in kitchen gardens, they were eaten raw or cooked like other vegetables, and were often served as part of dinner, they rejected the botanical truth, made them a vegetable, and therefore continued to tax them. It's so, amazing what the government <laughs> can do. So for that reason. So um, a, a couple other things I want to share with you. Uh, I've learned this from my other fellow tomato gurus here with Master Gardening, and that is we talked about the flowering, and as the plant grows, the flowers get taller, but they're not real good pollinators. So Let's talk about pollination. Great. So what I use, although I was this was shared with me, and that's what the beautiful thing about Master Gardeners, is I just use a cheap $5 electric toothbrush that you can put a battery in and you can get it at any... What are you talking about, a toothbrush uh, yep. with our tomatoes? <laughs> Well, what you do is you take a toothbrush, and you're not going from tomato plant or tomato flower to tomato flower with the brush itself. You're touching the back of the stem the flower is hanging from with the back of the vibrating toothbrush, and that frequency shakes, it up shakes the pollen off, and it absolutely, again, I've been doing this so, for so long, it increases production. There's no doubt about it. So uh, I have an old toothbrush that I use, and didn't pay a lot for it, and just touch. There's no doubt my neighbors think I'm crazy. <laughs> When I'm out there with my toothbrush. There you go. Again, though, you don't want to go from the flower to flower to flower, or you'd be cross-pollinating, and you'd end up all the same tomato throughout your whole garden. Yeah. You just want to touch the back of it so that pollen falls within its own plant and increases pollination. Interesting. A great tip, too, because even I haven't heard about that. Let's talk about storing tomatoes. Storage. Uh, some research was done recently, and, of course, since it was about tomatoes and I happened to stumble across it, I read up on it. And that is the best way to store a tomato is upside down with, this, with the, uh, the uh, blossom end up, the stem side down. And it is found that airborne bacteria that surrounds everything in our life uh, isn't able to enter the tomato as easily on its flat, smooth bottom side than it is on its stem side. So it prolongs its storing ability in, in your house. Never store a tomato under 50 degrees because the flavor component in the tomato is completely shut off at below 50. So a vine-ripened tomato should never be stored in a refrigerator. Very good. It's upside down at room temperature. How about cherry tomatoes? My wife puts cherry tomatoes in the refrigerator. I wouldn't, the I wouldn't put any tomato in the, in the, in the refrigerator. Right? Yeah. Any well, vine-ripened tomato. See, I learned something Very today. good. And I'm going to pass it on to my wife. She probably won't believe me. <laughs> tell her I said so. Or have her listen, have her listen in. I'll <laughs> blame it on you. Another question comes up, a ground or container. Well, there. Uh, if you go on the web or out on the web and you look up containers from uh, plastic, contain, you know, a plastic container that you can make a tomato growing container out of, oh, there's yeah. a lot of stuff out there. And I grow... I guess apparently 20 in my garden isn't enough, so I make sure I have two or three in containers also. And they do extremely well 
one tomato, one container. It's an 18-gallon. Again, if you go on the Internet and look it up, uh, especially if you have limited space or you live in an apartment, you, you're going to need full sun. So partial shade is not going to work. But you could also put it on a furniture dolly and just roll it around. I mean, it depends right. how dedicated you are and yes. how bad you want fresh tomatoes. But you know, if you roll it on one side of the porch in the morning and we get home from work, roll it on the other side or whatever that means, it allows you to grow in a container and get tomatoes. But full what, sun is critical. How, 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 what do you mean by full sun? Uh, how long? Generally, the full sun is considered a minimum of eight hours. Minimum would be of eight would, or maximum? Well, minimum. You need at least eight hours of full sun. To get a good to, tomato to get a production. Good, good tomato production. How about a, on a patio where you have maybe a louvered uh, sun? Well, you can always take a shot at it. And the worst you can do is have a container that you need to, you'll need. you grow something else in in the wintertime. Uh, but... Always try it. We've heard of those upside-down ones. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, that I just, used to be a fad. I don't know if it and they actually work. They actually worked. I, uh, I was talking to a, a fellow just the other day, and he was telling me how great it worked and how many tomatoes he got. But he had it in full sun. So, and you could do almost. You could you could take a five-gallon bucket, hang it, poke a hole in the bottom, fill it full of soil. Of course, it'd be wet soil, so the soil didn't come out. And in that hole in the bottom, stick a tomato plant in there. And you'd have essentially the same thing without the mail-away process of... Yeah, I, I, I've, in workshops that I've done, heard people talk about it, but with mixed success. And probably like anything else, in gardening or anything else, there's always mixed success, using good fundamentals... As far as watering, as far as sun, location. Right. The success could be just exactly that. <clears throat> the successful person happened to have it the right spot in the sun. Right. And the less than successful, not knowing that it had to be a full sun, saw it on TV, grew it on their porch, and, and it was like, well, this doesn't work. Yeah. Well, it wasn't in the right conditions. That's more, right. More than so, like everything <clears throat> else, when when we come up with issues in gardening, we call it... The answer is, it depends. It, yeah. It <laughs> right. So we have this nice long conversation, and we think we've learned something, but when it comes right down to it, Mother Nature will decide how you're going to end up doing. One, other, one question I had for you was on fruiting habits of tomatoes. Some seem to go on a long time and regrow more tomatoes, grow up, as you say. Others... <coughs> Give uh, give a one-time shot, and then they're done. Well, that's back to location and luck. We have a master gardener who, we in this time of year, will bring us handfuls or baskets full of cherry tomatoes. That particular tomato grows in a little area right up against the back of our house, near a chimney, so it's got a V-shape. Okay. It absorbs its full sun. It absorbs heat all day. It radiates a leftover heat or residual heat through the night. So, again, it all depends. In that particular situation, right. she she just keeps growing them. And, I, again, I, I, I want, I'm stingy. I want my winter crop. So, as much as I love tomatoes, when they're done, they got to go. Gotcha. Let's start them and, again. And uh, <clears throat> is, is there a difference uh, in determinant and indeterminate? Great question. A determinant is a plant that uh, doesn't continuously grow, as I described earlier. I was describing indeterminate, so I'm glad you asked me that, where it continues to grow taller and the production follows it in its height. 
determinant is something that's more of a commercial type application uh, where all the tomatoes, for the most part, there's exceptions to the rules, of course, but for the most part, all the tomatoes grow on one smaller uh, plant all at once. And that'd be favorable for uh, commercial growing where when you can go harvest because the harvest destroys the plants pretty much if it's done with a machine. So you, if you're going to plant tomatoes for ketchup, for example, you want them on a small, uh, untrellised plant that produces a lot of tomatoes all at one time. All at one time. Right. Like romas? Romas, now, of course we grow romas in the garden because they're so right. good for sun drying, and yes. I actually use a dehydrator, not the sun, but they turn out really well. And, of course, pasta. So uh, they have a tendency, although there's, again, exceptions, for the most part, they start to do a lot of tomatoes in a short amount of time, and then they're done. Gotcha. So we'll keep that in mind. Now, I want to get a little, we talked uh, somewhat about pest management and and using the Internet to pull up some good information on disease resistance and handling of diseases. Uh, one thing I had heard is a lot of our gardens we get aphids. And I heard that neem oil is a good help for aphids. Is that something that fit, that you use? or I, The only thing I use in my garden is for tomato hornworms, and that's a, a product called BT. BT. Which happens good. to be a, 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 bacteria. A, a bacteria that affects and interlocks only with uh, uh, enzymes produced in a caterpillar stomach, making it extremely natural, extremely safe, and it's only active when it ties in and, and kills a caterpillar. And it doesn't impact and the fruit. It, it doesn't impact the fruit. As far as aphids, personally, I don't have a lot of aphid problems, but when I do have aphids, I'm more of a get the hose out and blast them off because they seem to be a new growth springtime, and sure. you can kind of overcome I know currently, as my kale is coming, it's not toward an end, but it's certainly in its mature state. As the days are warming, they are a tendency to have aphids on them. So I don't spray anything on them. I just hose them off. Hose them off and get rid of the babies that are going to right. to come. I'm pretty organic in my garden. You know, I'll use some snare or some uh, snail killer maybe in the agapanthus over in the in the. Uh, garden or the flower area right but once you enter my garden it's i don't want to be a fanatic about it but i it's i'm eating it i have an opportunity to make it organic and i do and for our listeners regarding pests care of a variety of vegetables or anything that's out in the garden you can always check the master gardener website it is www.uccemg.com. Or, if you're having a real frustrating problem, contact the hotline, and you will get advice to grow on for issues that you are having. And that website is hotline at u ccemg.com and use those two websites 
and you will not go wrong and have better success. I know one of the reasons that people stop gardening, and it's probably one of the major reasons, is poor results. Yep, that can be frustrating. And in mentioning those two sites you just mentioned, they that is a source of pride here for us master gardeners, and it is all uh, research-based, peer-reviewed information. So it's up-to-date, it's local, It's if you're having problems and you're frustrated, we're going to help you out, and that's the best way to go. It's great, great information for the public. Brian, you have been a great guest, and I know our listeners will get a lot out of what you have brought with us today here at the South Coast Research Center, and thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. I enjoyed it very much. Very good. And, oh, for our listeners, don't forget the two things money can't buy, true love and homegrown tomatoes. If you have any questions about today's show, or if you have any general gardening questions that you'd like a personalized answer for, please feel free to visit our hotline and send us an email at hotline at uccemg.com. You can also visit the Master Gardener website at www.uccemg.com for lots of good information on gardening and also a schedule of events where we'll be speaking.